turn to Ephesians 6, please. I'm going to continue dealing with the spiritual warfare. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, and we'll read through verse 18. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints." We just bow our heads briefly and pray. And Father, I just ask that your spirit will be here with us and minister your word to all of us here and open our eyes to how significant it is, Lord, that we just wear that belt of truth around us and that we contend earnestly for the faith. And I just ask that you'll speak to all of us, be here with us today. We thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Getting to our text, uh, we're going to be dealing again with verse 14 about the loins being girt about, but truth. But Paul says in verse 13 that we need to be able to withstand in the evil day. And listen, if we haven't realized, and I'm saying we are obviously in the evil day, are we not? (laughs) And everyone here should be able to answer this question, how do we stand? And the two things we say he starts off with is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's the first thing. And the second thing he tells us there is to put on the whole armor of God. Every piece is important that we put it on. We can't leave anything off. It's critical that we have all the pieces of our armor on. And so I want to get back to looking at that first individual piece, the belt of truth. So first time we talked about this, I said, I don't believe that Paul put the order of these pieces of armor. They're not put there in a haphazard way. They're not just mixed around. I think he has them there in order of importance, even though all of them are very important. So we just said you can't leave any of them out. But I do think there is an order of importance because truth is put first because it is an essential piece because without it, none of the rest of the armor will be effective or even matter. And why is that? Because when you put on that belt of truth, what are you doing? You're committing your life to the entire Word of God. And the Bible, it becomes your authoritative standard for your life. And that is what has got to happen. So it has to be the authoritative standard of all of our beliefs and our practices, how we walk about in our daily life. And we have to have that on first. If we're going to put on the rest of the armor and to be able to stand when that battle takes place and when it's over with, it's got to be first and foremost. So the thing is, though, that truth, that belt of truth, we're saying is the authoritative word of God, the whole counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation. 
it's not just a matter of reading the Bible or having the Bible or listening to verses quoted. What do we know? That it also has to be rightly divided. And that means it has to be correctly interpreted. Paul wrote this. He said to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's what rightly divided means, to accurately handle the word of truth. Because if it isn't accurately handled, almost every church is going to be based on Scripture in some way, is it not? Everyone would say that. If it's not accurately handled, though, what you're going to end up with is either a cult or a church that is somehow denying people the blessing of God is what ends up happening. What I want to say is the standard or the authority of our belt is truth the Word of God alone. That is the standard and authority of our lives, the Word of God alone. I'll talk what I mean about authority here in a minute. So, in other words, it's not our reasoning, it's not science, it's not our feelings, it's not church traditions, it's not other Christian ministries and their interpretation of the Scriptures, because all of those things are trying to get authority over our lives. All of them are. Our reason, our feelings, science, they're trying to take authority over our lives. And I'm saying only the Word of God has that right. So, for instance, I could have made up a hundred different examples. You got somebody who wants to marry a girl who professes to be a Christian. But, so she says she's a Christian, but she doesn't pray. She doesn't show any real interest in the Bible. And in general, she just shows fruit of being worldly. So in your heart, you're like, man, I really don't. She says she's a Christian, but in your heart, you really know she isn't. But man, is she cute. And your feelings are really going wild about that. But the Spirit of God keeps bringing you back to that verse in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 that says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And it come into your mind. And so here you are, you're torn. Between your feelings, your emotions, your drive, your desire to get married, the fact you're young, and all of that that goes with that, and the authority of God's word. And so what is a Christian going to do? What's a Christian going to choose? Well, here's where we get into having this belt of truth on and having it on in the sense that you're wearing it and using it. Because if that's the case, if a Christian is wearing that belt of truth, who's going to win that battle? The authority of God's word because you've placed yourself under that. You're saying, that is what's going to dictate my decisions. I have decisions to make. I'm going to the Bible to find out what I should do. And it'll give you an answer to every decision you have to make, either in detail or in principle. And we have to say, as Brother Hamilton used to always quote Martin Luther, my conscience is bound to the word of God. And that's how the Reformation Protestant churches like ours, that's how it got started, because Mother Church was always trying to dictate to people what they had to do with their traditions and everything else. So where does that authority of the Bible to be the standard of our lives come from? Where does it get that kind of authority? Simply because it is the Word of God. God, the sovereign creator of all things, of the universe. The one with infinite power and wisdom. This God has breathed out this word that we call the Bible. And it's his revelation of truth for us. 
And that is the spiritual authority that we're under. Because listen, this book contains more truth, wisdom. It's incomparable to the greatest philosophers, the greatest thinkers that this world has ever produced. And so you got the greatest philosophers we've ever had, the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. I had to read a big book on Nicodemian ethics by Aristotle. Oh, so there's truth in there, but he's coming up leaving you empty. And he's empty himself because he's got a natural mind. And his wisdom that he had, well, he had some, but it only took you so far and it left you frustrated reading it. But man, that man had to be frustrated and all of his followers. Because here's what the Word of God says. It says, has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so their wisdom, however great the world is impressed with, it is foolishness, the Bible says, compared to God's wisdom. 2 Timothy 3.16 that's an easy one to remember because you got John 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a crucial scripture. And it begins in the King James by saying, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that is not what the Greek says. So some of us have heard that before. But the Greek says, All scripture is breathed out by God. All the scripture we have is breathed out by God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, how we should live, that the man of God or woman may be perfect, mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All scripture is God-breathed. We can be complete. It is everything we need. And that's why the Protestant Reformation, the leaders and fathers of the Protestant Reformation came up with the term sola scriptura. And that is Latin for scripture alone. And what it means is that all the truth, all truth, so we're talking about the belt of truth that is necessary for our salvation and our spiritual life is taught outright or in principle in scripture. So based on that, The breathed out word of God, it contains everything we need for correction, for how to live a righteous life, anything you could wonder, for doctrine, for being reproved, you're going the wrong way, get you on the right path, you can make it into heaven. That authority of that should govern our lives, and it's found right here within this book, and we don't need to go any further than this. We don't. So what do I mean by authority? When I say authority, we're under the authority of the Word of God. So by authority, I mean the power or right to give orders and enforce obedience. Now, that is from the Oxford English Dictionary. That's their definition of authority, but I thought it's a good definition. So here's the thing. Do you believe the Bible, as the Word of God, has the right to give orders? But Jesus calls them what? Commands. Doesn't he? Does it have a right to do that? And to demand, does the word of God have a right over our lives to demand obedience? Does it have the authority to say you need to commit yourself entirely to its truth and teaching? Sola Scriptura. That's all we need. Scripture only. And I believe that it does. (laughs) I sort of answered that because from cover to cover, it's just not a word. It's just not a collection of books, even though it is that, right? But it's a word 
from God, a revelation from God himself. We take things for granted a lot of times about what we have in this Bible and having this Bible, this revelation that God has given us. Because listen, without it, we would literally, like the world is, we would be groping in darkness, trying to find our way, trying to understand who God is, what's required of us to be saved. How can we get rid of this problem called sin that we're all plagued with, this disease, or any disease for that matter, real disease? How do we get rid of this? Do we just have to live with it, cope with it the best we can? And God has given us his breathed truth. So the Old Testament, it's not just books. It's God's breathed out revelation. The Old Testament prophets would repeatedly say what? The word of the Lord came to, and then fill in the name of your prophet. The word of the Lord is what they were speaking came to. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And, and then it would go on to say, and he put a word, he, God, put a word in that prophet's mouth. His word to be spoken. Or the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel is how it's worded. And King Amaziah told Amos, he said, man, you're just talking bad things. You're up here, you come from south, and you're up here speaking bad things against us in Israel. I don't want you prophesying anymore up here. And what was Amos' reply? He says, look, I wasn't a prophet, king. I wasn't a prophet's son. I was a herdsman. I was a gatherer of sycamore fruit, and the Lord took me as I followed the flock. He says, I'm just minding my own business, but God grabbed hold of me and took me, he said. And the Lord said unto me, go, prophesy unto my people Israel. And then he tells the king, now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Man, I didn't ask for this job. I was happy painting, climbing ladders. That's what he's saying. But here I am. And God said, I'm going to put something in your belly, Mr. Amos, and I want you to go and you speak to Israel. This is my word. It wasn't that he probably wanted to do that. And so the spirit of God, we're saying, would come on these prophets and the writers of the Old Testament and move on them. That's what it says. He'd set a fire in their belly and God would use them to speak and write his words that's what we need to see. It's not a prophet speaking. This isn't a history book, Genesis. That's the Moses, God-given revelation, his word given to us. In 2 Peter 1, it says this. Know this first, Peter says, that no prophecy of the scripture, and he's talking about the Old Testament, is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. So what he means there by no private interpretation, he's saying these guys didn't just sit around and think, well, hey, you know, I, got a, I don't like these people up north. I'm from Judah. I, I got a word I want to give them. I want to get on their case. Uh, he's saying it's not like that. It wasn't some private decision that I want to get on somebody's case. He's saying, no, it came from God, not by the will of man. But he went on to say, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's an interesting word. So he says that the Old Testament was written by this these holy men, as they were moved. And it means carried along. God is carrying them, giving them these words to speak by the Spirit of God. And so God himself was in control of everything they're writing and saying. Every Old Testament word is breathed out by God. Written by men, but he doesn't override their free will. They are just yielding themselves 
letting themselves be moved along by the Spirit of God so that they can write His words. Speak His words to the nation. It's the Word of God coming through these vessels. And you read the books and you can tell there are a whole lot different people that wrote the Old Testament and the New. And then you have the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And He claimed Himself that His words had divine authority. How many times, especially in a Sermon on the Mount, did he say, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. So he's speaking with the authority that only God could speak with. No man could speak with that kind of authority. If it was just a man, they could justly stone him or crucify him, right? But that's what Jesus said, but I say unto you. He claimed, literally claimed to be speaking God's words. He said this. If I say the truth, he told the Jews that were struggling with him, if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? If I'm just speaking the truth, what are you struggling with? Why do you not believe me? He went on to say, he that is of God hears God's words. So he's saying right there, I am speaking God's words. And if you're of the truth, you'll recognize that, is what he told those people. In John 6, he said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And like we said the last time, two weeks ago, the whole purpose of the Son of God coming into this world was to do what? The belt of truth. I haven't, I'm not going to get away from that, the whole message. We're talking about truth this whole time. But what was his whole purpose in coming here? He said, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth will hear my voice. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying God sent him here for a purpose, to reveal truth, and not just truth to be heard and recognized. Oh, yeah. You know, Gandhi would read, supposedly, the Sermon on the Mount every single day, unconverted, though. But this isn't truth just to be admired. Oh, he was a good man. He was a prophet. He had words that were like Confucius's words. <laughs> He's not saying that. Jesus is claiming way more than that. He's saying, I came here to reveal truth. And just by implication, he's saying, it's truth that needs to be heard and obeyed. Because listen to this. This is a solemn verse, John 12, 48. Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And you would think, well, he's the judge. You know what he said? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Wow. So the word of God, the words of Jesus, the word of the Old Testament, we're up to the Gospels right now. That's just no ordinary word. This is inspired truth that has to be heard and obeyed. We should have ourselves under the authority of that. We don't have a right as Christians to say, well, yeah, I mean, I've heard this in the past, but I just don't really see it that way now because it's just not convenient for me anymore. And what about the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament? So the authority that Jesus was given to give divine revelation and truth, he gave that also to the apostles and the writers of the New Testament. So just like with the Old Testament prophets, it wasn't just this authority to come up with the New Testament in their writings. It wasn't just something they came up with, this is what I think I'll write. Sounds like a good idea. I kind of like the way I write. I like to get a blog going someday. It's not something they came up with. It was something that was given to them. And that's important to realize when you're reading the New Testament. I mean, I have talked to people 
And when I was working, customers that would say, you bring up something about Paul, and it'd be like, well, that's just Paul. Literally, I had that said to me, that's just Paul. What did he know? And that's not uncommon. He's just Paul. Well, Jesus, I might have to listen to, but Paul, who's he? Oh, no. He, anything he said that's in our New Testament is the same as if the Lord himself spoke it. So we're in Ephesians 6. Just look back in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, 19, it says, Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And look what it says in verse 20. We are built, our church is built upon what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What that's telling us is the foundation of the church is the teaching and doctrine that was laid down by these apostles and prophets. And we'll see in a second, it was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. So remember what Jesus said in John 16? This applies to us, but it especially applies to his apostles. And he said this, he says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, we're talking about truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So what is going to be the source of the revelation given to the apostles? The Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth is who is going to give them their truth. So Paul and the other apostles, knowledge of truth was given to them. They didn't dream it up, as I said. It was truth revealed by the Holy Spirit. So you're in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Look what it says in verses 1 to 5. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, it was given to him, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And look in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, but look at the end. It is now revealed, it has to be revealed, unto who? His holy apostles and prophets, how? By the Spirit. So what we have in this New Testament, these epistles, and even the Gospels, it was revealed truth that came to these men, given to them by the Holy Spirit. And look down in verse 7. Paul didn't decide he wanted to be apostle and to write the New Testament. Verse 7, he says, Wherefore I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And if you would, turn back to Galatians 1. So we're saying this revelation, this truth that makes up our New Testament is something that was given by the Spirit of God. In Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, see again, Paul writes, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me, he says, I didn't get it from man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it. But how did he get it? By the revelation, he says, of Jesus Christ. It was given to him by revelation. We won't turn to this, but if you read Peter, Peter goes on and says the same thing, that our beloved brother Paul was given revelation, and he was able to write scripture, he calls it. He puts it on par with the whole rest of the Old Testament scripture they had. All, and Paul wrote most of the New Testament. 
So one test we have with this New Testament we have, everything we have that makes up, you may not know this, you may not care, it is important though, but everything we have that makes up the canon of the New Testament, all of our New Testament books, one of the criteria that was used by the early church, you know, because God didn't come down here and say, these are the 26 books I want to make up your New Testament. Men decided that. And we trust that they were inspired by God to do it. But one of the criteria they used was it either had to be written by an apostle or have a direct influence by an apostle or oversight. Because most believe Mark got his information from Peter. He traveled with Peter and listened to Peter talk. And Luke was with Paul. And so you're out there looking at me thinking, what is the point of all of what you just said? What is the big deal? Because honestly, when I come to church, you know, I really like to find something that is going to help me out with my stress at work. Not all this other stuff you're talking about or what the, I got, I got a child on drugs and you're talking about Paul got revelation. How's that going to help me with that? <laughs> I got this out of control temper. I need to learn how to deal with that. Would you get on something like that? <laughs> or I just lost my job. How is that going to help? I'm saying you're asking me, how is that going to help? Don't you see the point of what I'm saying is that this book right here, this is your help, and it comes out of the breath of God. <laughs> How is it going to help? It's our only sure anchor that we have that will give us truth to deal with every situation. Honestly, there is no situation you can be in in this room that the Bible does not have an answer for. And I'm not just saying that like, well, yeah, you say that, but it's not helping me out. Well, that's because you're not searching it. I'm telling you, it's an answer for every problem you have. It is right there, the God-breathed truth. So we need to look at it like that. We need to have this idea in our mind. God has gone to the trouble to breathe out this word, to move men, to write for us. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable. <laughs> we need to see that. Profitable, it's useful, the word means. Beneficial, advantageous. We've got everything we need to cope with life. In 2 Peter, he says this, one. He says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things. He's not left anything out that pertain unto life, and that covers our existence. Unto life, he says, and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. So he's given us through his power everything, all things that we need that pertain, that have to do with our life and godliness through the knowledge of him, the knowledge of the scriptures, everything we need to know. How to cope in this world and how to walk in holiness. So I'm saying too, the fact that God has done that, given us this revelation of truth, all things we need, then we have a responsibility as a result of that, that we must submit ourselves entirely to the authority of the Word of God. And let me ask you, have you backed off to that commitment to truth? It's a question to wonder about, isn't it? Have you backed off to your commitment to the Word of God where it used to be? Because we should be so committed to this word of God as Christians that we can't get enough of it. Now, I'm, I'm encouraged the fact that there's a lot of people reading their Bible again. That's a great sign right there. People have hunger for the word. But if you can do without the word, that's an issue. 
Because I think a great sign of regeneration is a love for the truth of God, the love for the Word. So Peter wrote to new converts in his epistle. He said, you have purified your soul in obeying the truth. And he went on to say, to encourage them, he says then, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And if so, be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So he's telling them this same truth that's purified your souls, given you a love for the brethren. If you partake of that word, it'll also cause you to grow as you drink deeply. <laughs> when I first got saved and filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm saying, honestly, for me, I was just so excited because I had tried to read my Bible as a Catholic teenager. And there was just so much I couldn't understand. I just stuck to the Gospels. None of the epistles made sense to me, honestly. It really didn't for the most part. And I got the baptism, and it's like, bam, I can understand this stuff now. This is great. And I just couldn't read enough. I was telling somebody, and so, you know, we had a church, and our church up there, I didn't weigh what I weighed now, and I played basketball all the time. That's, that's, that was my life, pretty much. And those guys at church would go play every Saturday morning. They thought they needed me to be the fifth guy or whatever. And so I'd be like, I'm, I'm going to stay, I'm going to read my Bible. Oh, Mr. Deep. And I'd hear that stuff get on my case. I'm like, I'm not trying to impress, and I wasn't. I thought, you know what? I lived, drank, and slept basketball. That wasn't getting me anywhere but to hell. Well, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not trying to impress anybody. This is just really where I'm at right now. This is the desire I have. And man, I'm reading that, and I'm trying to put everything I read into practice, and I'm falling on my face half the time. But that's how you grow, and that's how you learn. God is gracious. That's what he says. And oh, man, how many times, though, would you taste that the Lord is good? But it comes from reading this word. And you're committed to it. It's the authority you're living under. This is my life now. And we need to get back to that. We really do in a lot of ways. We need to get back to that. So part of wearing this truth as a belt, as armor, it means you're putting it on. We're talking about everything we've talked about up to this point. You're putting on this armor. Why are we putting on this armor? Because we're expecting what? A fight, are we not? You better be. It's going to come. And what are we going to have to fight for? I'm saying this is the first thing. If it is the first thing you need to have on, as I've said, and the most essential, what do you think the devil is going to be trying to jerk off your spiritual waist? The belt of truth. <laughs> and you're going to have to fight for it because he's doing all he can to get that belt off of us. And there are people that have dropped their belts and run. And I just want to honestly and sincerely encourage everyone in here, if you've dropped your belt, to pick it up and put it back on. Or maybe you've let that belt get a little loose and your pants are sagging. Just tighten it back up, so to speak. Recommit ourselves to truth. So Jude, a little epistle of Jude, he said, he starts that off saying, you know, I went to write a letter to encourage you all in the common salvation, he says, but I couldn't do that. He said, instead, I had to do this. I had to exhort you to fight for truth because he said, I think that's more needful. Listen to what Jude 3 says, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, that was my diligent purpose. He said, it became needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. 
And if you read Vine's dictionary on a word for earnestly contend, it's two words in English, it's one word in Greek. Vine says that word means to contend about a thing as a combatant, a warrior, someone that's got armor on that's in a battle. That's what earnestly contends. And we're talking about spiritual warfare, are we not? And Jude is saying, you are going to be a combatant. You need to be. I'm exhorting you, a combatant for the faith, which is another way of the faith is just saying the truth of God's word. And he's saying it will take intense effort to hold our ground because the word for earnestly contend, it has that idea of intense effort to earnestly contend. I'm saying the devil is doing, he's grabbing at your belt, my belt, trying to get it off of us. Because if he gets that, we can have all the other. It won't work. All the other armor. It won't work. He's after our belt. And he says that truth, that faith that we're to contend for, it's this, what we hold in our laps. The faith, it says, that was once delivered unto the saints. And that word means once and for all. It's not going to be done again. The knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't change. The knowledge we're going to have of him that God has given is contained right in here. And we need to get back to this. Say, oh, I follow Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. Well, this is how you're going to know about the Lord Jesus Christ is right here in no other way. It's been once and for all delivered. The canon is closed. There's not going to be any new revelation about Jesus. None that I want to hear. He's given us all. He says, we're not to what with this book? What does he tell us? We don't add to it, and we don't take away from it. So does that mean, so God can give us guidance by his spirit? Hey, heck, I have a word that convicts us, a word of knowledge about someone's sin, or a word of knowledge that wisdom, you need to do this. But that's not adding to this revelation. That's over with. I don't want to hear that. And yet people sometimes are open to stuff. Oh, We've got some revelation that's outside the scope of what the Bible is. That is dangerous. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, it has been laid. And it's complete. We don't need anything else to help us get through. And so words that contend, he's saying, for this right here that's already been given. And we do that, how do we contend for it? By embracing it, by believing it, by living it, by preaching it. By talking about it with each other. And here's what I want to get at. We need to do that and be so committed to it. We're going to do that no matter what the cost is. That's the only way it's going to work, no matter what it costs us. So that's everything that we've been taught here faithfully for 30 years. The truth of divine healing. That tongues are the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Non-resistance. Forgiving those that hurt us, fasting and praying and giving in secret, not suing our brothers, praying for the body, loving our enemies, telling the truth, being honest in your dealings with other people, and on and on and on. And we must be prepared to contend for the faith, for truth, if it costs us our lives. And that's the cost Jesus said that we have got to be willing to pay if we're going to be his disciples. And it gets right back, doesn't it? All of it gets back to Luke 14, 26. If you don't start here, you'll never make it. Because he says, if any man comes to me and hates not his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yea, and his own life 
also. He cannot be my disciple. He preached this invitation, the parable of the prodigal son. He's got all these sinners and publicans and harlots following him, coming, and he turns to the crowd, and that's what he says to them. He's saying, this is where it's got to start. When you approach this word, we've committed ourselves, our lives, if it costs us our lives to follow this word, that's what we'll do. We're committed to it. And that's the message we heard, and I don't think it's ever changed. It hasn't changed. We've changed, but it hasn't changed. And so if you want to make it to the end, any of us, I'm including myself in here, there's some things happening to me lately that have just opened my eyes to some stuff. That's why this is all my heart. This battle for truth is bigger than we realize. But we, if we're going to make it to the end, we had better consider ourselves dead now. That's what he's saying. You better hate your own life or you can't be my disciple. In other words, if it's a matter of you're going to have to be martyred, I'm God, if that's what it takes, I will do that to stand for truth. This is an old movie. I think it's based on true accounts. They had these bombers that would go, they were bombing Germany, but they didn't have any air support. They just had the guns on their planes. In the movie, this guy comes over to take over this group. These guys are all stressed out. They're having problems. They're getting discouraged. And the first thing the guy tells them is, I'm going to tell you right now, the only way you're going to survive and this is going to work for you is just consider yourselves dead. Consider yourself one of these ones that doesn't come back. Just consider yourself that that's going to be you. Or you will be so stressed out, you'll never be able to handle what we have for you to do. If that doesn't happen to you, that's just a bonus. <laughs> so hey, because everyone in here, we need to consider ourselves martyred, at least willing to be. And if it doesn't happen, then praise God. He doesn't say it's going to happen to everyone. He doesn't say everyone's going to be imprisoned. He doesn't say everyone's going to be beaten, tortured, does he? Some will. Wherever you are, he won't give you more than you can dare. But you can't say in your heart, Lord, I'm only willing to go this far and I'm putting the brakes on. Because the devil will know where to put those brakes on and get you to fall away from truth. That's what will happen. And that's the price. What I just said, that's being paid all across the world. We can just be thankful we don't live in a Muslim country and try to be confirmed. I'm telling you, those people, it's a tremendous cost they're paying as we speak. This is not fairy tales. It's really happening. So many are being imprisoned, beaten, and martyred. Why? Because they refuse to bow the knee to Islam. The God of Islam, they refuse to compromise the truth. And so what if we were living there? What would you do? You don't really have an option. You either bow the knee to that or you are going to have a bad, miserable life, except that the Lord Jesus Christ is with you. What he does is he gives these people visions of himself and says, hey, you go talk to this missionary. He will share the gospel with you. And I had a guy that taught my class that had people knock on his door. He'd never seen them before. Muslims. And a woman's there, and all she's like, hey, I had a vision last night. God told me to come here, that you were a Christian. She didn't know who lived there, and that you will explain to me the way of salvation. And you know why it has to be that way? Because they know to accept that, and God knows they have to have something supernatural happen that will sustain them through the persecution they're going to endure. And so in his graciousness, he makes it that way to where it's undoubtedly the Lord Jesus Christ has had his hand in their salvation. And they know that. 
But there's going to be a price to pay in my spirit in these last days for us to continue to wear our belt of truth. And like I said, it's an essential, critical piece of equipment to keep on. Because if we drop the belt, the rest of the armor is useless. So if you give up God's word as being truth, then what good is faith? Your sword is worthless. How will you live a righteous life if this isn't your standard and the authority you're under? The helmet just becomes a rag. Just a rag you got around your head. And I went back, and not in light of this message, I just happened to be thinking, I went back and was re-listening to Brother Hamilton's last message. I did that a week or two ago, and I wasn't thinking about this, but it came back to me as preparing this message. You know what his last message dealt with? God's contention with his people that there was no truth in the land. That was the text he used. They had given it up and taken off their belts. Here's the text he used, that last message, Hosea 4.1. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. That was his last words to our church. And I remember sitting there thinking, I thought, man, that is a really good message. And I remember sitting there, back there, thinking to myself, that is one of those, to me, it was like one of those special words of the Lord. It really was. I'm not just saying that because it was his last message. I thought that at the time. His last words to us. And he, I know this, he was a man that was committed to the truth of the word of God. And I, honestly, I think it grieved him. He was observing that the truths he had labored for 30 years to teach here for all those years are gradually being laid down. The belt was loosening. And I'm just saying, I think we need to reexamine how we are living and the decisions we make. They need to be made in light of this word. That's the responsibility we have if God has given us his revelation to do that. But it's going to take great courage to do that, to hold on to truth. When the rest of society and most Christians are pressuring you to compromise, and that's going to increase and increase. And if you haven't counted the cost of Luke 14, you will cave. The pressure will become too much. The reason and the logic of what they're saying will overtake you. We've got to be that committed in these last days. Great courage. So listen, Jeremiah 9.3, he says this. They will bend their tongues like their bow for lives, but listen, but they are not valiant for truth on the earth. That's Jeremiah 9.3. So we have to ask ourselves, are we going to be valiant for the truth in these last days? Are we going to earnestly contend for the faith? Do we really have a courage about our convictions, what we say we have convictions about? So if you would turn to Matthew 24, beginning in verse 5, it says this. Jesus speaking about the last days, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. He says, see that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are just the beginning of sorrows. And then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. And they'll kill you. And you will be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended 
Why? Because of this affliction and hatred is what he's talking about. Many will be offended and shall betray one another, and they'll do what? They will hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Verse 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And so listen, you read that. When iniquity is abounding, it is going to be very hard and only by the grace of God to hold on to the truth that you have to love your enemies. It's easy to say when it doesn't seem like you have very many enemies attacking you. But when you got people betraying you, afflicting you, people that you trusted, maybe people of your own family, and how easy is it then going to be to wear that belt of truth, to do what the Lord says? From your heart, forgive those that have afflicted you, people that have caused you pain, severe pain, when you haven't done anything to them, nothing to them. Will you be able to deal in justice with those that have taken advantage of you? Because it's going to be a time then when truth will have fallen. And I'll tell you why I say that. Because Matthew 25 speaks of a similar time in Israel when iniquity abounded. And if you will turn back to Isaiah 59... This is just like Matthew 24. I'd like to look at the whole chapter, but we'll just look at verses 13 to 15. And he basically talks about Israel at this point is living a very sinful life. But we see in Isaiah 59, verses 13 to 15, he says, "...in transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt." conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Verse 14, look what he says. And judgment is turned away backward. Justice stands afar off. Why? For truth is fallen in the street, and equity can't get in. He says in verse 15, yes, truth fails. So because iniquity abound, no one's holding on to truth anymore. They've taken off their belts of truth. They're laying in the street. That's what he's saying. And that's the way it's going to be in these last days. That's why I'm saying the devil is after our belts. Truth fails, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. And it says the Lord saw it and displeased him that there was no justice. And so because people had departed from the Lord, departed from his truth, departed from the authority of the word, they're dealing wickedly with each other. Truth was lying in the street, like I said. And it's like today we see people have taken off truth from around their waist and it's just laying there in the street, failing. And this is saying what we're reading there in verse 15. It says, he that departs from evil. In other words, the man that decides. It talks about Job did that. He departed from evil. So the man that decides to live righteously at that time, what does it say? He makes himself a prey. And that's the way it's going to be in these last days. The people that decide, I'm going to live righteously, I'm going to live the way God wants me to live, they are going to become a prey to the evil ones. And that's why it says they'll be suffered affliction, they'll be betrayed. That's what's coming. In a sense, in a lot of ways, it's already here. Exposing yourselves to danger. But listen, let me just, I want to give an illustration. So standing for truth, this is nothing new. Standing for truth has always been costly, <laughs> all the way down through church history. 
And I'd like to give you one example of a man. I could have given you many. But there was a man named Athanasius. I don't know how many of you have heard of Mr. Athanasius. But he was a man who stood for truth. And I'm telling you, it cost him dearly. And he contended for truth that we embrace. And he had to contend basically against all of the then known religious Christian world. So Athanasius was a bishop and a pastor and a theologian back around 300 AD. And here's what he suffered. His enemies derisively called him the Black Dwarf. That was his common nickname. And he was ex exiled from his city of Alexandria where he was a pastor. Five times he had to leave that city. He's pastor of that city. He was exiled to distant lands just for standing for the truth. He was falsely accused of tax fraud using magic, treason, murder. Because he was the pastor, his church was attacked. Women were murdered. The church was wrecked. Tombs were polluted. And when he was banished, he got banished five times. The fifth time, the guy's 67 years old. Caesar sends him into exile. And this was what was written about him by a current author. Athanasius stared down murderous, murderous intruders into his church. He stood before emperors who could have killed him as easily as exiled him. And he risked, I thought this was good, he risked the wrath of parents and other clergy because he consciously trained young people and told them they should give their all for Christ, including martyrdom. And people didn't like that, that he's telling young people, you should be willing to be martyred for the truth. And it was said to Athanasius, this is, I'd heard this quote years back. I always wondered about this guy because I thought, man, I like a guy like that. But it was told him, Athanasius, the world is against you. And his reply was, Athanasius contra mundum. And that's Latin for, you're telling me the world's against me? Then his answer was, then Athanasius is against the world. And he's saying that because I'm standing on God's truth, not because he had an ax against the world. He was valiant for the truth. And you say, well, what is the truth? Because I haven't told you yet, have I? I'd be wondering if I was sitting out there. The truth was that our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is, believe me, no small thing. The truth he stood for was that our Lord Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. The fact that we know that, and it's just like, uh, well, whatever. We've known that all our lives. Well, the only reason you've known it all your lives is because of one black dwarf, Athanasius. Because the widespread popular doctrine that everybody accepted at the time was Arianism. And Arianism said that Jesus was a created being. Oh, he's the greatest created being, and he is of a substance like the Father, but he is not the same substance of the Father, not the same spirit, not co-equal in substance and spirit, right? Not fully God. This is where we got to say truth is critical. And they said that man studied the Bible. It just was part of him, like a lot of these great men I've heard. And that's how God was able to use him. But he had the spiritual insight to see. And this is true. If that doctrine would have become accepted and part of the church, which God just didn't allow it, but if it would have, he could see that millions who embraced it would lose their salvation. He only, he fully understood a truth that if Jesus isn't God, there is no salvation. Do we know that? Well, I've got that error. 
That error is in the prison I go to. Oneness doctrine. And believe me, I got quite a bit of flack when I stood up and I knew that's going around there. And I said, hey, that's a heresy. You can't have that. See, people, you're going to go to hell if you accept that doctrine. I wasn't real popular. That was the biggest meeting we had there, wasn't it? Over 100 and some people. And I'm sitting there saying these guys are heretics, and it makes it sound like I got an axe to grind. I don't have an axe to grind. I just know what the Bible says. Because here's what the Bible says about that. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ, the teaching about Christ, has not God. And a crucial teaching of Christ is that he is fully God and fully man. Because if he is not fully God, we have no salvation. And John says... He abides not in the doctrine of Christ, he has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And so we take that for granted that Jesus is God. Maybe you don't, but a lot of people have. It's been accepted for 2,000 years. But it wouldn't have been if one man wasn't willing to stand up against the devil and his schemes and the rest of the world and say, though none go with me, I will follow. And that battle went on. And none did go with him until the very end of his life. And the church finally came around. And that teaching of his became accepted truth. And we could be thankful for that. But here's what happened. So people, they just think, oh, I just want to get along. Ecumenicalism, it's coming back too. Oh, let's just hold hands with all these other churches. If you love Jesus and all, I'm saying that is so dangerous. You don't understand how dangerous it is. Because Athanasius, one thing they got on him about is you are causing division. And he did. And we've got to be glad he caused division. Paul caused division. <laughs> Do you know that? I know he did. You know why? Because he says in Galatians, if any man preaches any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, Paul says, let him be accursed. Do you think those people that he's saying they ought to be accursed are real happy about that? You think they didn't have some things to say about Paul? Oh, they did. Because Paul went on to say, I've got to love truth more than I love unity, more than I love men, more than I love what you care and think about me. That's what he went on to say. Let me read to you what he said in Galatians. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have received, let him be accursed. He says, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men, he asked. He says, for if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So sometimes doctrine will cause division. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. So should we seek to please men or God when it comes to contending for the faith? Because Paul said himself, if I seek to please men, then I will no longer be serving God. And i got to make a choice. So I'm saying, my whole thing is, we are going to be tested in these last days. Because the Bible, the Word of God declares it is all we need. 2 Timothy 3.16 for instruction and in how to live to please God. It is the truth that has got to be put on as a belt. It's the essential part, I mean essential part of the armor that God has given to us in this intense struggle we'll have. I mean, we know 1 Timothy 4.1 in the latter days, doctrines of devils, seducing spirits, they're already here. So we've got to have this belt of truth. And so the fact that our Bible, rightly divided, is the God-breathed word 
revelation, it gives us an obligation, I've said, to submit to it fully, to its authority fully. Because Jesus says if we don't submit to his word, and that's all of it, not just the things he spoke, he said that word will judge us in the last day. So it's not going to be easy, if you haven't figured that out, to keep the belt of truth tightly strapped on our loins. So we're going to have to earnestly contend. And we said we do that by fearlessly loving it, living it, preaching it, and embracing it. So the question is, when iniquity abounds, will your love wax cold? Or will you be as the young people in Athanasius' church who were willing to give their all for the truth of God's words, even if it meant martyrdom? You know, we got to choose which camp we're going to be in there. And so my prayer for this church is that we have a church full of people like that that are committed to wholly following the word of God as it is taught. That really is my honest prayer for here, that it'll be like that. Not just the young, but young and old alike. I don't want to limit it to young people because that takes me out. That we're warriors for truth here in this church. People that will boldly say, though none go with me, yet I will follow. And I'll tell you one thing that opened my eyes. But we were watching a movie the other night, Jay and Becca seen it, about this lady that she wasn't a Jew. She was a Polish woman. But her dad had told her he, he ministered to Jewish people. And she started taking these little children in at a risk of her own life. But she knew it was the right thing to do. She got hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many of those kids. She saved their lives. And you know what happened? She knew she was putting herself in danger every day. But it's like, I've got to take a stand for this truth. And she told this other girl, this young girl that came on board with her, part of a group that was helping him. She says, you've got to be a soldier. That just stuck out to me. You've got to be strong. In other words, this is a war that we're in now. And it's the same for us. And I thought, and at the end, she gets caught. And they don't treat her very nice at all. <laughs> Not nice at all. But she was willing to pay that price. And that's where we've got to be. We've got to be willing to lay down our lives for the truth of God's word. That's what he's called us to. Amen? And believe me, it'll be worth it in the end. It will be. When we stand before him and he looks at us because we didn't compromise and we stayed valiant for the truth. And when he looks you in the face and smiles and says, well done, now good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. You think you're going to regret it then, no matter what you have to go through between now and then? We won't. Paul says, eye has not seen, nor ears heard. What God has in store for those that are faithful to him. And we've got to remember that. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, I ask you, Lord, for all of us here, that you will cause us all to have a heart for your truth, that we will put on that belt of truth, Lord, that your word is the supreme guide in our life, the supreme authority in all the decisions we make and how we govern our affairs, how we trust, what we trust in, whom we trust in, that all of it is from you and for our good. This revelation, this God-breathed word you've given us is all we need, all things that pertain to our life and our godliness. And we just thank you so much, Lord, that you've given us this revelation, that you've blessed us, that you've blessed us as a church with truth, and that you will continue to give us more truth and open our eyes to see how we can better live and serve you on a daily basis. And I ask that you'll give us all hearts that will stick to you, Lord, no matter what. 
no matter who seems to not be walking with truth, no matter who seems to be laying down our belt, I ask that you'll give us hearts that we will keep that belt of truth on and stay faithful to you to the end. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here in Jesus' name. Amen.